Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Women in the Republican Party, who are they and what issues do they want to see championed in D.C. and at the local level? Coming up, we'll speak to Connecticut women who are registered Republicans, and we'll hear from a columnist who's critical of the mainstream idea that to be pro-woman, you must identify with liberal politics and the Democratic Party. Now, we want to hear from you this hour. Are you a woman registered in the Republican Party? Have you felt alienated at times from other women because of your party loyalty? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we wanted to know how the role of women has changed in the GOP. Joining us now is Catherine Rimp, Associate Professor of History at the University of Missouri, author of Republican Women, Feminism and Conservatism from Suffrage Through the Rise of the New Right. Catherine, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Now, your book uh, begins about the women's role in the early conservative movement. We're talking in 1920 with the women's right to vote. Tell us about that time and how did women get involved in the Republican Party? Right. Well, when um, women got the right to vote, there was a big question um, for suffragists and also for women who hadn't necessarily been active suffragists, but they recognize that they have a new um, civic role. Um, And the question was to be involved in politics. Should they join political parties or should they continue to work in separate organizations, women's organizations that were mobilized around certain issues like the temperance issue or um, uh, uh, gaining other kinds of rights for women. Because a lot of women worried that if they joined political parties, they were entering into a really corrupt institution of smoke-filled rooms where back deals were making, and they really believed that their brand of politics was more pure. So a lot of women don't join parties at all, but there were others who thought, you know, if we really want to have a say in the politics of our country, we need to join a political party. And so some do join both Democratic and Republican parties. But it's a it's a struggle to um, establish a real presence there where they have any influence. What kind of women got involved? Um, well, they would be um, in terms of the Republican Party, they would be women who were already fairly active in um maybe in the suffrage movement, in local politics, in their own cities, Um, some women who were um, wives of Republican politicians. And so one of the the forms of of activism, if you want to call it that, that you see in the beginning is pretty elite women forming Republican women's clubs. Um, And in some some parts of the country, those, those Republican women's clubs were Um, very involved in trying to organize women to vote for the party. In other parts of the country, they were more like kind of elite social clubs where women got together and did things, you know, that elite women did. They weren't necessarily on the ground trying to organize. So there was a real range. So there were club women and then party women. Right. And the party women were the women who wanted to 
um, actually enter the, the, the party. I mean, parties were a lot stronger then than they are now. So the idea of entering a party would mean you would formally join a party. And um, for, for the women that I talk about as party women, those are women who are then also taking on leadership roles, being the local um, precinct, precinct woman or being on the Republican National Committee. And the Republican Party in the 1920s does, in, in response to women's suffrage, doubles the size of the Republican National Committee. Um, it previously had had you know, one man from every state, and the size was doubled so that um, there would also be one woman from every state. So that's why we still have that system today, a Republican committee man and committee woman. And the, the Democrats did the same thing because both parties are trying to win over the votes of women. And this is a way that they can show, look, we're the party of women because we have women on our um, you know, governing bodies of our parties. So if we jump forward to the 60s and 70s, that was another mm -hmm. uh, major turning point uh, for women, this idea of second wave feminism. Tell yes. us about that time and, and how the issues may have changed. Right. Well, um, when second wave feminism emerged um, as, a, as a grassroots movement, it had a lot of diff took a lot of different forms, a lot of different shapes, and different women organized around different issues. And the women that I think of as um, sort of the, the political feminism, that, that part of the feminist movement, really wanted to see um, more women in elected office and wanted to use the um, kind of mainstream political process to achieve um, goals for for women. And initially, political feminism was not associated with one party more than the other. What you saw was in both the, the both the Democratic and Republican parties, efforts by um, women in those parties to to see women's issues taken more seriously, to see women playing a greater role at party conventions, and to see more women running for office. Um, one of the big um, feminist issues of the 70s was the issue of the Equal Rights Amendment. And um, it was initially an issue that had supporters in both parties and opponents in both parties. And Republican women, Republican feminists, there were um, a number of prominent Republican women who really identified with the feminist movement, particularly with the issue of ERA and with abortion rights. Um, and they worked within their party to um, get those issues um, a hearing in, in, in their parties to, to try to keep support for the ERA in the Republican Party. It had been there since the 1940s. Um, and to get um, men in the party to take women more seriously. I'm speaking with Catherine Rimp. She's Associate Professor of History at University of Missouri, author of the book Republican Women, Feminism and Conservatism from Suffrage, the Rise of the New Right. Um, Catherine, you mentioned about the different roles of women in the party. There are two women that come to mind uh, reading your book. One was uh, Phyllis Schlafly and Mary Louise Smith. And how did they yeah. come from two different spectrums? Right. Well, um, they were they're both midwestern women they have that in common they were both you know extremely bright women who got involved in party politics um you know going back to the 1950s for mary louise smith who's probably less familiar to your listeners than than phyllis schlafly um, mary louise smith got involved as um, a grassroots organizer for her party doing the work that um 
women in both political parties did in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, getting gearing up for Election Day. They were the ones who went out and encouraged people to vote. They would drive voters to the polls. They would do that kind of grassroots organizing that was so vital to the party. And that's how she got started. She In the 60s, she ran to be um, – uh, Republican National Committee woman from Iowa in a you know a fiercely contested race, and she won, and so that got her onto the national stage. And um, what um, made her the most prominent was after um, after Watergate and the resignation of Richard Nixon, when the Republican Party was really trying to um, project a, a new image to the country that you know we are a we're a changed party. We we are we're um, a party of the future. One of the ways that they tried to do that was by nominating the first woman to chair um, a Republican or either either um, uh, uh, party national party committee. She became the first woman to chair the Republican National Committee and was there during the Ford administration and through the election of 1976. And she was one of these women who strongly identified as a feminist. Phyllis Schlafly um, was becoming prominent um, uh, around the same time, um, beginning in the 60s, really taking off in the 70s, as an organizer of women opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment. So they were both Republican women. They were both known for their grassroots organizing. Um, They were both known for their positions on women's issues, but they were on um, very opposite sides of a number of issues, ERA being the most prominent. Now, Catherine, when we talk about uh, Mary Louise Smith being a feminist, what did it mean to be mm-hmm. a Republican feminist? What issues were most important at that time? For her, and again, feminism was a diverse movement at the time. It still is today. For, for her, it was um, a notion of equality and individuality, and, you know, the rights of individuals. And she talked a lot about, you know, she and her, her colleagues, um, when they made their arguments to the Republican Party that it really needed to get out in front on feminist issues, what they argued was that these are inherently Republican issues, that issues of equal opportunity and the rights of the individual are part of the Republican Party um, uh, ideology going back to its founding. And so that there was nothing in their argument, nothing um, un-Republican about taking on those uh, those issues. And that was their strategy for um, uh, getting those issues uh, out in front on, within the party. But then when Reagan was nominated, things started to change with this role of the feminists in the Republican Party? Yes. When, um, I mean, Ronald Reagan did actually run in 1976 as well. He challenged Gerald Ford for the Republican nomination. And that was a moment when you could see the Republican Party splitting um, between um, sort, of, sort of established moderates who had been you know, largely in charge of the party for a long time and a kind of um, a, a challenge from um, what we today think of as, as social conservatives in, in, in the party um, and um, the broader platform of Ronald Reagan, who rallied around him in 76. And he's, um, he's not nominated, but one of the issues that uh, at, in 
1976 was the issue over Republican support for the ERA. And when Reagan was nominated in 1980, that year, Republicans took ERA out of its platform. It had been in there since the 1940s. And they also inserted a a plank that called for a constitutional amendment to ban abortion. And this was very challenging for women like Mary Louise Smith, who identified very strongly as both Republicans and feminists. And I think this is one of the one of the interesting things in, in, in listening to how you're, you're, you're framing the discussion that you're going to have later on in, in the program. Republican feminists had to decide um, what they were going to do in 1980. And some prominent Republican women um, did not support Reagan that fall. Some of them went and worked for the third-party campaign of John Anderson. Some of them eventually wander away from the Republican Party. Um, for Mary Louise Smith, the Republican Party was her home. Um, she had had her entire political career through the Republican Party. That's where all of her contacts were. All of her ability to be influential was within that party. And so she stayed in and she worked with the Reagan campaign um, in a, in a um, you know, an organization that was set up to uh, uh, appeal to women voters, to recruit women voters into, in, to vote for Reagan in, in the fall. And um, some people criticized her for that, and and her position was, you know, she was a she was a feminist, but she was also a Republican, and that she really opposed Jimmy Carter on a number of issues, particularly economic issues and defense issues. And so, for someone like Mary Louise Smith, it made no sense to leave the Republican Party and vote for a Democrat. That was very far away from her um, her background, her ideology. But the women's stuff was very hard for her. So the women that stayed within the Republican Party, people like Phyllis Schlafly, uh, they were the ones that they didn't really align with gender solidarity, but with issues that mattered to them individually. Um, I, I would I would think of Schlafly um, different than that. I think she was she was a um, a political leader for whom gender was very, very important. She organized women, um, and she organized them around certain understandings of um, their position as women and, and the argument that feminist issues like um, like, uh, like the, the ERA would harm women. That was her, her perspective. So she very much organized um, women and organized around gender issues. She just came to a different um, conclusion. But she was someone that really focused on the family and something that we see yeah. as the Republican Party um, changed through the years with more of a leaning towards the Christian right. Um, right. She was she was a Catholic and she did organize a lot of um, uh, evangelical women um, uh, before we really talked about a Christian right. You know, I mean, that that was a term that emerges a little bit later, but certainly we can see her as a, as a precursor to that kind of organizing. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at the role of women in the Republican Party. Our first guest, Catherine Rimpf, Associate Professor of History at University of Missouri, author of Republican Women, Feminism and Conservatism, From Suffrage to the Rise of the New Right. Uh, Catherine, what can we learn from looking back at history and how uh, the parties have changed and how they now may appeal to women? Uh, so lately we're hearing so often that if to be pro-woman 
woman. It is someone who identifies with the liberal uh, party, the Democratic Party. But that's not necessarily true. So what do you see as the trend uh, as we look at the Republican Party today? Well, I think it's um, it's certainly a very interesting time. And I think we see, um, you know, a, a lot of women did vote for um, Donald Trump in this last election, de- despite, I think, what a lot of commentators assumed that um, some of his comments about women and behavior towards women would turn um, women voters away. It did turn a lot of women voters away. But I think if um, you know, if we look back to women like Mary Louise Smith um, from this from the 1980 election, I think there's probably a range of responses that um, women who voted for Trump had. Some of them really were not bothered at all by his um, comments about women, and they happily voted for him. Others were really disturbed by his comments, but for them, there was a you know a kind of a whole picture of um, their party and their larger political ideology that was not going to make it possible for them to um, vote for an alternative candidate. And I think we have to understand women voters as complex political actors um, that uh, they have to make complicated choices. And we, you know, we, I think we all do that um, in in elections. We make choices about what issues we can compromise on in, in, in one particular election. Sometimes we hold our nose and vote. Sometimes we vote enthusiastically. And women are no different than other other voters in that regard. I want to thank you, Catherine Rimpf, again, Associate Professor of History at University of Missouri. We appreciate your perspective. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Now, coming up, we're going to meet some Connecticut Republican women who are also involved in the party on the local level. And we want to hear from you. Are you a female Republican? What are the issues that are that matter to you? And do you consider yourself a feminist? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Opponents of then-presidential candidate Donald Trump thought he was in big trouble with women voters because of his past comments. But we now know the naysayers were wrong. In fact, 42 percent of women, many who were white, voted for him. So what were the issues that spoke to them? The same issues that spoke to male Trump supporters, including the economy and their views on leadership. We know not everyone that supported now President Trump are registered Republicans, but today we're talking about women in the Republican Party, especially after there has been much attention on how liberal women perceive politics today. Now, joining the discussion right now on the phone is Carol Markowitz. She's a columnist for The New York Post. Carol, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So earlier uh, in the hour, we were talking about the history of feminism and how it had some roots in the Republican Party. These days, when we think about the party, a lot of people view it as anti-women. What's your take on that? Oh, that's just ridiculous. Um, I think that the idea that a a political party in America is anti-woman is absurd. And I think one of the main problems with that is that um, we've decided to identify being pro-woman as being pro-choice, and those two things don't necessarily align. There are many pro-life women, um, and it, it doesn't necessarily tie that a pro-life woman won't be a feminist. There's, you know, the new wave feminists who wanted to march in the Women's March uh, against Trump were conservative women who were pro-life, um, but had voted against Trump. And, you know, women are complex actors, like as Catherine said. Um, 
nobody counts on men to vote as men, and yet women get told they should vote as a woman. And there's something really weird about um, treating women as if they're some sort of small special interest group when they're over half the country. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I definitely don't think the Republican Party or um, non-liberals are anti-women. I think that's just ridiculous now. Well, if we look into your background, you've worked for uh, politicians. You've mm-hmm. been a conservative blogger. Tell us about your relationship to, to the Republican Party. You know, so for many years, um, I... I guess I, I'm, I always refer to myself as a conservative, but I worked in the party because I, I worked for people that I felt represented my values. Um, and I think in the last few years, I've even though I, I am still a registered Republican, I definitely refer to myself almost exclusively as a conservative because that's not going to change. Um, what, what my values are and what I believe isn't going to change, but the party can change around me and, and in fact has um, with the nomination and election of Donald Trump. I was a never-Trump Republican. I couldn't support him for a variety of reasons that didn't have anything to do with the mainstream feminism reasons. Um, It had nothing to do with abortion or any other um, reasons that women from the left had attacked him. I saw him as not conservative enough, and I thought the party had nominated somebody that wasn't a conservative, so I couldn't support him for that reason. So, yeah, it's it's a complicated um, dance when when your party sort of changes around you. Um, but I, I do still feel that generally the Republican Party represents me better than the Democrats do, and um, I do tend to still vote Republican. Now, you live and work in New York City? Right. I grew up in Brooklyn, so being a Republican was always kind of a challenge anyway. Um, but, yeah, it's there's um, definitely, you know, it's, it's a harder hoe out here, but there there were definitely areas of Brooklyn that Trump had captured, which I think were surprising to some people. Um, but it happened, you know. Now, you've attended CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, uh, for the past 15 years. The most yeah. recent one made a lot of news because of uh, President Trump. What did you see mm-hmm. this year? How is how is CPAC changing? Um, I definitely saw that there was a shift in the attendees towards Trump, Um from last year where there was still kind of the hope that Trump was going to be stopped as a nominee among conservatives. Um, and this year there was a real acceptance of Trump and his message, and it was a, a whirlwind of we won, we won. Um, and it, it, there was a lot of excitement, absolutely. Vanquishing Hillary Clinton was absolutely a part of that. And the, the Republicans, I think, hadn't counted on winning in the same way that the Democrats had so counted on winning that um, – surprising win of Donald Trump and the fact that we kept the Senate and kept the House um, was just an exciting time to be at CPAC and be around other Republicans and conservatives. So overwhelmingly not a male uh, attendance uh, this year. What what else did the young women tell you that you spoke with? Well, it was the most female um, CPAC I had ever seen. Um, I would say there were more women this year. I, I, I don't have the stats on this, but than I had ever seen before. And there was a, definitely an atmosphere among the young women, like nobody's going to tell us what kind of women we are, what kind of voters we are. Uh, we're going to be independent and decide for ourselves. And it was really nice to see. Um, I think that in so many ways, there's 
a lot of stuff going on uh, among in conservatism and in, in the Republican Party for women that's really not getting a lot of attention on the national stage. Um, I think this it's, it's the golden age of conservative female writing right now, and I think that that's being sort of not even mentioned in nationally um, or in any way that it would be mentioned in a much bigger way if it was liberal writing that was all of a sudden having these amazing female writers out right now. Um, so I think um, when you look at conservatism or the Republican Party, there's always going to be this idea from the left that they're not for women. But if this election showed anything, it's that women went, white women went for Donald Trump and it's really the Democrats that need to make up ground with them. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Carol Markowitz, columnist for The New York Post. Today we're talking about Republican women and the issues that matter to them. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, two Connecticut women in studio with me. Uh, First, Liz Karantowitz, political consultant, former chief of staff and finance director for the Connecticut Republican Party. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks for having me. Also, Representative Jebrin, uh, Melissa Jebrin, uh, state representative for the 34th District. That's East Hampton, East Haddam, and Colchester. Representative Jebrin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. It's nice to be here. So listening to our, our earlier guest and Carol, uh, as two women um, who are registered Republicans, tell us what your um, observations are uh, post-election of how uh, people view women who are in the Republican Party. I'll start with you, Liz. Uh, you know, I don't know that... Uh I've seen uh, a huge change in the way people see uh, Republican women. Um, I think, you know, nationally, when you look at the party and where we're going, um, you know, I think we've got, look, we had 690 women uh, running for uh, state office in 2015, 2016, uh, compared to 550 women running um, in the previous cycle. Um, You know, in Connecticut, our House Republican Caucus has uh, 22 uh, female members. The the House Democrats only have twenty one. Um, we've got two Republican women uh, sitting in the in the state Senate. Uh, the Democrats uh, they've got an advantage there of five. But um, you know when I look at Republican women and where this party is going and how we um, you know continue to grow, um, I look at the the leaders we have in our party and the people who represent us like. Uh, Representative Chabron, um, and how how they are uh, speaking for the party and, and the, the things that we believe. So Representative Chabron, um, uh, Liz had mentioned that in Connecticut, the landscape, there are a lot of women in the Republican Party that are in leadership roles. But what about nationally? You know, what's your take of what the, the national GOP is doing and um, in terms of, of working with uh, women leaders to work them through the party? Well, I have to be honest with you. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the national landscape when we're facing over a $3 billion budget deficit in the state of Connecticut. As the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee, I've been spending most of my time working with uh, women, uh, Republicans, uh, and leaders, not just in the Capitol, but, you know, there's hundreds of them on boards of educations, town councils, and others that are very concerned about whether they're going to be able to have a budget in place in time for this coming spring. And so that's been my focus. Um, Certainly many members of my family are more focused on the national level of politics, but I continue to focus on Connecticut. Of the of the women constituents that you talk to, are any of them focusing on on the national level? Or you know, any? there there are there are uh, some. You know, I think that there's um you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, a very active Democrat, and 
the loss that they felt uh, assuming that Hillary Clinton was going to be their president um, was very visceral. And uh, when I had the opportunity to talk to them and could see the emotion behind it, while I disagreed certainly with many of her policies, especially the fact that she actually stated that the, her number one enemy, uh, Hillary Clinton's number one enemy, wasn't ISIS, wasn't poverty, it was Republicans, um, made me very concerned. But I could understand my Democrat friends who really believed and invested in her candidacy. Uh, they did feel devastated. Um, and I think that there's been a lot of reflection for them and for their party on a number of fronts. But again, I uh, while I certainly listen to my family's banter, I keep reminding them that we have a three and a half billion dollar budget deficit, and I wish they would get as more concerned about their Connecticut, uh, their Connecticut dream and their ability to live here than the Republican national scene. Certainly, the the budget deficit yet another year is important. But um, from what you were saying, it speaks to the divisions that people feel within their communities um, when they're frustrated with the political process, whether locally or nationally. Yeah. How do we how do we correct that? How do we work on that? Well, that's a great question and something I really actually have pr uh, pride myself on. And it's really about um, trying not to take it personally and talking uh, about policy, not being afraid to talk to those who disagree with you. And I think that's one of my frustrations with some of my more liberal friends is that we can't seem to talk about policy without them immediately bringing up Donald Trump and whatever he might have said this week or last week. And immediately, because I might agree with one of his policies, you know, immediately you're labeled uh, as well. So how do we get across uh, away from this division really is by keeping the communication open, um, not shutting people down, not calling people a racist because they might have one opinion that aligns with Donald Trump and not another. Um, you know, I, I am a more um, socially uh, liberal Republican. I've never felt shut down in the Republican Party when I share my views. But I know my conservative Democrat friends who may be pro-life or may be more conservative bent don't feel like they can contribute uh, with their uh, Democrat colleagues. So I just continue to try talking to people. Um, I have a very good relationship with my Democrat colleagues in the House and the Senate. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get fiery uh, in a meeting, but I tried to the next day, uh, you know, break bread over a cup of coffee and say, all right, let's get back to work. And I think that's what we need to do. Liz, did you want to add to that the idea of, of um, I'm assuming that both of you from the notes that I'm reading, um, there's certain uh, views that you have from that even though you're registered Republicans sure. are more socially liberal. And so is that something that, you know, is more like a New England Republican versus when you're looking at another another state, another uh, member? It's funny when you uh, when I talk with colleagues, um, you know, at the national level, uh, you know, our politics are different up here um, than than they are in a lot of places. Um, but, you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier is um, I think sometimes having different views uh, within the the bigger tent of the Republican Party uh, allows you to be an advocate for those things and and have conversations because on 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 agreement you know you believe in self governance you believe in growing the economy from the the bottom up instead of top down you don't think that a one size fits all government approach is the way to go um, and so when you have common ground on those things and and you can have a conversation with with uh, colleagues within the party um, you know you talk to them about some issues that maybe you don't agree on, um, it, it gives you a position of strength. And, and the, there's an open dialogue, like like Melissa is saying, about 
you know, how do you have those conversations? I think one of the mistakes that Democrats are going to make um, in in response to this election is is if they think identity politics uh, are going to continue winning them elections, they're wrong. And I think that's one thing that uh, the lesson, the takeaway I see from from the presidential election is identity politics are not going to win elections. Um, and, you know, President Obama did not win on identity politics. He won on uh, on a on a promise for hope and change. Um, you know, and, and I think the, this need to identify and define everybody within their their little segment of the population um I think that's wrong. And I think that delivered the presidency to Donald Trump. I I think you're right in many ways, Liz. Uh, Absolutely. Um, You know, we there's people are quick to try to typecast a Republican woman and they do so at their own peril. The idea that I'm making decisions at the Capitol based on my uterus and not based on my ability to afford where I'm living, making sure my children aren't saddled with debt and that they can afford to live in Connecticut um, is a mistake. I uh, I think with my pocketbook, just like just like men do, and um, <laughs> certainly I have issues on social uh, things, and I fight for them. Uh, tomorrow, I'm. I'm going to be uh, supporting a bill for conversion therapy. I mean, the idea that Republican women don't uh, don't actually have an opinion on 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 other issues um, that affect their pocketbook and their ability to live is a mistake. We think that way first. The economy is first. All the other things we think about as well, but the economy is always first. I wanted to get um, our previous guest, Carol Markowitz, back into the discussion again, columnist for the New York Post. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you the original question I had also about leadership within the Republican Party, where we're not just seeing uh, men, predominantly white men, um, speaking out. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on um, efforts within the National Republican Party to have more women leaders up front. I, um, yeah, I think that um, there there absolutely is that effort, and there have been so many great um, female uh, candidates elected recently. You know, the one, youngest woman ever elected to Congress, Elise Stefanik, is uh, a Republican. Um, you know, Mia Love. There's been a lot of uh, really dynamic women being elected. Uh, obviously, there's still a long way to go. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, they made some, the, the other two guests made some really great points, which are that. That when women are treated like they are some marginal group, um, I think that's a real issue, and I think that's what Democrats are doing right now. They treat like women as if they're some tiny slice of the population, and they're just not. And they have a lot of the same concerns that men do, and a lot of the same worries and priorities. And um, I think the Republican Party really is speaking to those priorities, and it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in a a post-Trump Republican Party when it isn't quite as, you know, Trump was the cudgel to beat Republican women with, like, how can you vote for this man? He makes really terrible comments about women. But in a post-Trump Republican Party, what's going to be the argument from the left um, for why women shouldn't be voting Republican? It's going to be really interesting to see. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about the role of women in the Republican Party, the issues that matter to them. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Roy's calling from Hartford. Roy, you're on the show. Great. Thank you, Lucy. Love your show. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my question and my comments are for Ms. Markowitz. Um, 
like how can she as a woman um represent um this uh man in the white house and his cabinet i think of it as more of like an insult to my daughter my sister my wife and my mother and how does she explain this in her own household if she has daughters and so forth all right roy thank you for your question uh, carol you're probably you've probably heard that one before yes <laughs> once or twice well so first of all i didn't support donald trump i didn't support him in the primary i didn't support him in the general election i kind of sat this election out um but again it had nothing to do with as a woman it wasn't me as a woman um voting against trump or not supporting trump i went third party um i think that the idea that i should be doing anything as a woman is just Again, I, I find that really offensive because you're saying yourself, as a man, you didn't support Donald Trump. Um, so why should I be doing anything specific as a woman? Um, you know, just to flip that around a little bit, um, that I, I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton either. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that she and I are both women, I don't see eye to eye with her in anything. So it turns out women aren't this monolithic group that all should think the same way. Um, and I have a lot of women friends who did support Donald Trump and who um, are hoping for the best with his administration. And some of them voted for Obama the last time. So, uh, again, women are complex voters and just like men are, and they have a lot of different priorities. And to pigeonhole them as just having, you know, one priority or or to be um, voting only as a woman or not like as, uh, you know, a businesswoman or as um and any of the other uh, issues that men would vote on um, is just, you know, a little bit unfair and um, just wrong, really. It's, it's, it's women aren't going to be voting like that anymore. I think it also says something, Carol, that you said that you um, sat out of this election. You know, the parties need to do a better job of finding candidates and nominating candidates that speak to people. The moderate uh, the moderates in the party seem to always be the ones ignored. Well, I, I would that that might be true um i i don't i i am a conservative i'm not i don't know that i i'm not a moderate i don't um i have you know my conservative I, things that i believe from a conservative perspective and so for me it really was donald trump was just not a conservative enough he wasn't talking about issues that matter to me like free trade or uh, just smaller government all, all i kept hearing from him was you know, the same language of liberals, of we're going to take care of everyone. And when I hear that, I just hear government um, involvement in every area of our lives and higher, you know, just more funding from the government for everything. And I, I, I that, that was really concerning to me and among other things, obviously, with him. But, um, you know, I I think that <clears throat> I the parties have to represent um, who their voters are. And I, I have to admit the Republican Party has a gigantic tent at this point and Donald Trump really did speak to people in a way that um, previous Republican candidates hadn't because they didn't go on to win the elections um, so no matter what I think personally about Donald Trump I have to respect the fact that he hit on something in people and they really responded to him I wanted to, before we go, I wanted to talk about your most recent article in the New York Post um, telling both the Democrats and Republicans to get over Hillary Clinton why is she right. still such a central figure? Well, that's the thing. We've spent 20 plus years um, wondering what is Hillary Clinton going to do next? And 
wondering that is it's, it's hard to stop asking so that's why we keep asking is she going to run for mayor of new york is chelsea going to be a u.s senator it's just we're so wrapped up in the clintons for so long and both parties really need to let go of her and you know i, I got a lot of I, in the last 12 hours since the article went up i've gotten a lot of pushback from, from liberals and democrats saying no i'm still with her i want her in 2020 and that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you have to let go of Hillary Clinton. There has to be other candidates. Like, it can't just be Hillary Clinton every time. Um, and How sad for Democrats time. They have that, that they're pinning their hopes on her. We've got a, a plethora of Republican women right. that could step in. I mean, you, you mentioned it before, Susanna Martinez, Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got yep. tremendous uh, women that, that, uh, that can come up the ranks here. Look, 690 women ran for legislative mm-hmm. office uh, in the last cycle. Exactly. So. Yeah, and on the Democrat side, Hillary is all the air in the room, and that's how really sad. A problem. Sad, you know? uh, but you also mentioned your article that the the extreme right also needs to get over Hillary. Yeah, absolutely, I think that uh, we wish so we long. could, but she's constantly in the news. <laughs> <laughs> let's We're, talk. Let's talk more about Bernie. Now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, no, I want to um, go ahead, Carol. Before we head out, head yeah, to break. Yeah, I was going to say just that you know, absolutely, the right needs to move on from her. There was so much at CPAC, um, still mention of CPAC and uh, of, of Hillary, and she needs to just fade out and just like other losing candidates have, and she needs to just kind of leave us alone for a minute to like recuperate from the Hillary Clinton years. <laughs> well, Carol Markowitz is a columnist for the New York Post. Thank you for joining us today, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Now, coming up, we're going to continue our conversation about women in the Republican Party. Two of them are in studio with me. We're going to shift from the national scene. Let's talk about what's happening locally. And are you a woman who's part of the Republican Party in Connecticut? You can join the conversation too. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, get the lead out. At least that's what Connecticut renters Rosie Gallant and Adam Golka hope to do after discovering the toxin in their Woodstock home. On the next Where We Live, we'll hear their story and learn how repeated lead exposure has impacted the health of their daughter. And later, disruption at the Bushnell. We'll preview this week's Connecticut Forum with featured guest Anjali Kumar. That's tomorrow. Now, today we're talking about Republican women in leadership roles, especially in Connecticut, including Representative Themis Claritus and New Britain Mayor Aaron Stewart. We're talking about women in the GOP today. In studio with me is Liz Karantowicz, political consultant, former chief of staff and finance director for the Connecticut Republican Party, and State Representative Melissa Jebrin, State Representative of the 34th District, East Hampton, East Haddam, and Colchester. I wanted to take a quick call. Betty's calling from Voluntown. Betty, you're on the show. Thanks for taking my call. So just want to give a heads up. I was a Republican until the recent election between Blumenthal and McMahon. I grew up in the second wave of feminism and a, and a very strong feminist, but was true to my Republican roots until we, we had the last Republican candidate for Senate, because I think it became a values issue for me. It seems like the Republican Party became an issue of values and to have someone come into office who really, through her work, degraded women was the final straw for me. And that's when I decided to leave the Republican Party. All right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Betty, uh, for your comment. Uh, Liz, did you want to respond? Uh, no, she's entitled to her opinion. I, I disagree with the uh, with the view, but uh, that's OK. It's so often when we do um, think about what makes people vote for uh, someone in political office, it, 
it's hard for people to separate, say, what they may believe in terms of a political party's agenda and what their personal beliefs sure. are, what they do in, um, you know, their employment. Um, well, Representative Gibran, did you want to respond at all to, you know, how people, I guess, rate a candidates when they're thinking about, you know, electing them? No, I think that I think she's perfectly uh, she should be able to make those decisions. Again, that's, you know, the mistake I think people make by painting Republicans with one, you know, wide brush. Um, you know, I, I think that it's important that people feel like if they're not being heard, no matter which political party that they're belonging to or uh, participating in, that they can make a choice. You mentioned not generalizing. So when we talk about uh, the issues within Connecticut um, that uh, women uh, leaders in the Republican Party are bringing up, talk again about some of the things that you want uh, to be speaking about and getting attention about in terms of how you're addressing uh, concerns from from constituents. Well, I think there's a a wide variety of bills um, that you're looking at. This, in this session uh, right now is kind of the frenzy of the public hearing process. And so this morning on my Facebook page, which people can find at uh, hashtag CTHouse34, I posted the whole agenda uh, for this week. And there's a lot of bills um, that uh, I have co-sponsored and some I haven't that are um, probably more controversial than others. I mentioned earlier, and, and I appreciate the correction, I was supporting a bill to stop conversion therapy, to ban conversion therapy. And um, my friend, Representative uh, Curry, uh, has proposed that, and I'm, I'm one of the co-sponsors. And then probably the, one of the most conver- controversial bills that I've uh, been working on is uh, a bill to legalize uh, recreational adult use of marijuana. Those will be heard this week. There's uh, another thing that I think people need to think about, too, and that's the outrageous gun permit uh, fees. Those will be heard in in the Finance Revenue Bond Commission. There's a lot of different things going on this week, and I think that's why when people want me to talk about the federal scene, it's difficult for me to do that because I'm so focused on what's going on locally. So the economy, number one concern that you're hearing from your constituents. Yeah, well, the governor's budget is um, is built on a lot of premises. One is that he's going to find $700 million in the first year and $846 million in the second year for union concessions. Uh, I know uh, that that's going on now. In fact, we had a meeting with Republicans, believe it or not, aghast behind closed <laughs> doors with the AFL-CIO. We, Lori Pelletier was gracious enough to come in and give an overview of the collective bargaining process. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the appropriation Republican members had that opportunity. So, you know, that's one changing teacher pensions and putting that on municipalities, over $400 million, and then a number of other things. But most uh, important to my constituents is education uh, funding, uh, shifting um, literally 130 towns uh, tax dollars uh, to direct it to 30 communities, which would leave gaping holes uh, in many budgets across the state. In my district alone, uh, East Hampton stands to lose over $3 million. Uh, Colchester is a little bit more than that. East Haddam is close to $2 million. But there's some communities in the Greenwich-Fairfield area that may have zero, zero funding 
for their for their kids. Um, so we have a lot of work to do, and the budget process is just ramping up now. I wanted to talk more about young Republicans. I mean, we heard about um, a lot of people at CPAC this year, uh, different uh, and different attendees from previous years. Um, Liz Karantowitz, can we talk a little bit about sure. um, from some of the grassroots of work that you've done? You know, what do you see are some of the issues that young Republicans are you know focusing on? Yeah, I mean, I think that young Republicans uh, here and 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 everywhere, they're you know we're talking about the most most empowered uh, next generation of voters, right? Um, you know, millennials, next generation voters, however you uh, want to classify them. Um, they're, they're the most empowered generation this country has ever seen. They have the, the world literally at their fingertips. Um, and when we talk to them about um, issues that are uh, core Republican values, uh, things like self-government, self-determination, um, an open government versus a closed government, building our economy from the from the uh, bottom up rather than than top down, uh, empowering c- communities and people to make decisions as opposed to empowering government to make those decisions for you. Um, you know, we win. Um, and I think, you know, particularly in the last, you know, eight years or so, you know, uh, as we're experiencing uh some down times in the country economically and certainly here in Connecticut, the Democrats' response has been, well, we'll manage your decline, right? Um, and I think Republicans are in a position now, as, as Melissa is showing, to, to offer a different way um, and to say, well, we don't have to manage your decline. We can help you do better um, and we can empower you uh, to make decisions about your future, uh, that are going to allow you to live in Connecticut, to grow a family in Connecticut, to build a business in Connecticut. Um, and, and that's why Republicans are winning uh, at the local and legislative level. I mean, you know, 30 percent of the House Republican caucus is women compared to 26 percent of the, the House Democrat caucus. So clearly women leaders um, are alive and thriving in Connecticut politics, and, and we're all better for it because, as Melissa said, um, you know, it's about working across the aisle, working within your caucus with people who disagree with you. Yeah. Um, and I think that that lively discussion exists much more so in Republican circles, I think, probably a- than it does on Democrat circles. So, absolutely, you know, I, I think um, I, I think we're in a we're in a great position, um, you know, and look, the the Republican Party, Republican candidates are going to uh, lasts a lot longer than one presidency, no matter how long uh, it lasts for. So I, I think the, the future is bright for us. You say Republicans are at the table. Um, we've only got 30 seconds, but we shouldn't remind people that the Senate, there is now a tie within That's the right. Republican Democrats. You finally feel like you're at the table to talk further negotiations with how to get Connecticut out of this next budget. Deficit. And the House yeah. is only four, four votes shy That's of right. a majority. So, you know, I mean, things are changing in this state. Well, I want to thank Liz Carantowitz, political consultant, former chief of staff and finance director for the Connecticut Republican Party. Nice to have you on the show today, Thanks Liz. so much for having me. Also, Representative Melissa Jabren, state representative for the 34th District, East Hampton, East Haddam, and Colchester. We appreciate your time today thank as well. Thank you so much. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. And special thanks to WMPR executive producer Katie Tularski for today's show. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and thanks for listening.